Thank you so much, Brother Wayne. You always do a wonderful job. Thank you for ministering to us this morning in that song. Why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6 as we wrap up a series this morning through Paul's letter to Timothy. Over the last six weeks, each week we've taken one chapter and sort of picked out the highlights and emphasized them together. This morning we'll do that in uh, chapter number 6. We'll look at verses 3 down through verse 21. And uh, if you've missed any of those sermons, or if you'd just like to stay up to date uh, with our preaching ministry here at Southside, we've recently launched our own podcast. And so if you are if you listen to podcasts on your phone, now some of you are like, huh? Well, then that's not you. But if you listen to podcasts, you know what I'm talking about. Any of the major podcasting apps on your smartphone, if you'll just search for the phrase Southside Direction, that's our unique podcast title, Southside Direction. And basically it's just the Sunday preaching ministry uh, here in our church. So check that out and feel free to share it with your friends so we can spread the message of what God's doing here in our Sunday morning services. Um, did you know that in the Bible there are about a hundred leaders whose lives are described for us? What they did, where they were, how well they did, whether they were godly or not. And listen to this, out of a hundred leaders, only about 30 finished well. 70% didn't finish well. You think of leaders like David, what a mighty man of God, and yet you know how he stumbled with Bathsheba. He didn't finish as well as he could have. We think about his son, the wisest king Israel ever knew, Solomon, and the multitude of, of wives and the influence of pagan nations and their religions that came in to the kingdom. And, and then through his sons, the kingdom would be divided and really never brought back together again, at least not yet. You think of even, in my opinion, the greatest single leader in all the Bible, aside from Jesus himself, Moses. Even Moses didn't finish like he wanted to finish. There was a point in their journey through the wilderness where the people of God needed water and God told Moses to speak to a rock and he would make water come out. And Moses, in his anger and his frustration, he struck the rock instead. And as punishment for that, for not finishing well, Moses was only allowed to go up on a mountain and look into and see the promised land, but he himself was not able to enter. Only about 30 or so of 100 of leaders of God's people were able to finish well. Now, in a similar way, Jesus told a story in Matthew 13 about different types of soils, right? It's called the parable of the sower. And Jesus said there's a sower. He goes out to sow some seed. And as he does, he encounters four different types of soil. One of the soil was a path. One was rocky soil. One was soil with lots of thorns. And one was good soil. And in each of those cases, when the seed was thrown in the soil, initially they did okay, but then before long, something came around and they didn't finish well. Only one of the four soils. So we take these things together. Let me tell you something. Brothers and sisters, there's only about, okay, the odds are stacked against us. There's only about a 25 to 30% chance that you will finish well. Because see, you're not finished yet. You may be doing great today, but we don't want to just do well today. We want to stay faithful all the way to the end. So look at your life. Look at your life with Jesus. How are you doing today? Uh, put it in reverse 20 years. How were you doing back then? Okay, we want to finish 
well. And here in the finishing chapter of Paul's letter to First Timothy, uh, to Timothy, um, I think that he shares some things with us that will help us finish well. So whether you think you're early in your journey with Christ or whether you think you're in the fourth quarter and you're not sure how much time you have left, all of us need to listen to what God says when he gives us some ways to make sure that we finish well, um, we're looking at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 3 in just a moment. Uh, God's word here shares three things. Three things we need to emphasize that I believe will help us finish well. Number one, grow in godliness. Grow in godliness. Look at verse 3 with me. It says in verse 3, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then notice this last phrase, and the teaching that accords with godliness. Right? Paul here is going to elaborate just a little on the difference between false teachers and true teachers. Really, it's the difference between false Christians and true Christians. And what it comes down to is this, godliness. Growing in godliness is so important because godliness is the clearest mark that you've been saved by God, that you have a meaningful, growing spiritual life, and that you're on your way to finishing well in the Christian life. We want to run the race with endurance. It's not a sprint. It's a long distance race. Now, how do we know if we're truly a child of God? Well, I'll put it to you this way. Um, if, I, uh, if I'm looking for a pair of socks, you're going to have to forgive me, Lauren. She doesn't know I'm about to share this story, but just forgive me. But if I'm looking for a pair of socks to wear, right, how do I know whether those socks are clean or not? Huh? No. Thank you, Robbie. <laughs> you sniff them. Now, all of you are like, oh, I would never do that. Yeah, half of you probably did this more. Are these clean? Let me make sure. <laughs> right? I mean, you got a laundry basket. Sometimes there's clean clothes in the laundry basket. Sometimes there's not clean clothes in the laundry. You, you smell it. And that's how you know whether it's clean. Godliness in our lives and growing in that godliness is kind of like the smell test for the child of God. Right? How do we know we're doing well? Well, right? Is there any godliness in your life? If you ain't living for Jesus, your life will not bear the marks of godliness. Jesus said of true and false teachers, you will know them by their fruit. And what does the fruit look like in the child of God? Galatians 5 says the fruit of the Spirit, right? Capital S, the Spirit of God is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We can take all those wonderful words. We can summarize them with this one word, godliness. Godliness. Growing in godliness is how God makes us to be what we've always been meant to be, right? God made us in his image. That's some deep doctrine from early in our, the pages of our Bible. We were made in God's image. And so to the degree that godliness starts making that image in us shine and be beautiful and be what it's supposed to be, right? To that degree, we experience integrity in our life or wholeness in our life. Godliness in that sense brings us together as whole people and not divided people. If godliness is the key marker of 
a true child of God. Ungodliness is the marker of a false child of God or a false teaching. One commentator I read this week said this, the ultimate test of any teaching is whether it produces godliness. False teaching, he would go on to say, has no power to produce genuine godliness. And so it's a very simple question for you this morning. Are you growing in godliness in your life? Brothers and sisters, you should be. But here's here's the better news. You can be. You can be growing in godliness in your life. The right kind of teaching, the right kind of faith, verse 3 says, accords with godliness. Godliness flows from it. The wrong kind of faith does not. And uh, in our passage here in verses 4 and 5, uh, Paul will outline for Timothy three examples of ungodliness, right? These, these are the kind of things you don't want to characterize your life. And to the degree that they do, well, to that extent, you're not growing in godliness. In verse 4, he mentions spiritual pride. Speaking about false teachers, verse 4 says, He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. One, one translator paraphrased that line and said, Ignorant windbags. Isn't that awful? <laughs> I laughed out loud when I read that this week. Puffed up, right? It's the idea of wind puffed up. And their ignorance is in that they don't really know what they're talking about, but they've got a lot of confidence. Jesus warned against spiritual pride. In fact, he warned against it a lot. Indeed, spiritual pride and his message against it was one of the hallmarks of Jesus' teaching. And, and particularly whenever there were Pharisees or, or, or uh, experts in the Old Testament law around, Jesus said these words in Matthew 6. He said, hey, listen, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. It's spiritual pride. Jesus says, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You know what Jesus would say today? I think here Jesus would say, hey, watch out for prayer selfies. Right? Hey, everybody, look, I'm praying. It's a mark of false teaching. Spiritual pride. Uh, secondly, Paul warns against an inordinate desire for controversy, right? He's, he's elaborating on this theme of godliness. He's given examples of ungodliness that were at work there in the ancient church of Ephesus where Timothy served. And in the second half of verse 4 and verse number 5, he says of a false teacher that he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth. You know, those who aren't interested in godliness, but yet who are very religious, are often interested in the Bible as a source of amusement and things that are interesting for us, rather than what it's supposed to be, a, a place where we encounter God and we're changed. Okay, if you go to the Bible for amusement, oh, well, that's interesting. That's so deep. But you don't go to God's word for encounter with that life-giving force of God Almighty who wrote the book and to be changed in his presence. Let me tell you something, that's the mark of a false way of approaching God. We don't go to the Bible 
just to be interested in things, just, just to become sort of biblical eggheads or build our own source of knowledge, we go to God's Word to meet its author who wrote the book for us. One other thing that Paul will say about ungodliness is he speaks about false teachers and their desire for selfish gain. Look with me at the end of verse number five. Remember, he's, he's talking about godliness and the ungodliness of false teachers. He says of these false teachers that they imagine godliness is a means of gain. And there's, there's a couple of ways in which supposed godliness could create gain for us. Well, if you're gainfully employed by a church, it helps if you appear godly to your congregation because then they'll pay you, right? But, but on another level, we experience gain by faking godliness when people think well of us. It feels good for people to respect you. I'll never forget, as, as a young college student, I was in a prayer meeting. It was the first time anyone ever sort of publicly bragged on my spirituality. And boy, I wish they hadn't have, because it went in my head. I remember praying in a, in, in a group full of adults. I was the youngest person there. It was sort of a pastor's prayer group in, uh, in the church where I grew up over in Douglas. And I remember praying. And man, I was just praying, you know, I mean, I wanted to sound good because there was a lot of older folks around. I was probably, I don't know, 19 at the time. And when we got done with our prayer meeting, our pastor said something that was really bad for me. He said, brothers and sisters, aren't, aren't we just so grateful to have young people like Deke in our church who can pray like he just prayed? And of course, on the outside, I was trying to act humble, but on the inside, I could feel my head growing. We all need to watch out for spiritual pride. Amen. It's very real. Let me share with you this morning a second thing that God's Word teaches us that will help us to finish well. The first is growing in godliness. The second one is related, and that is that we should cultivate contentment in our life. This uh, closing chapter of, of Paul's first letter to Timothy was a difficult one to try and categorize because it's sort of the end of the letter and it's like Paul was just trying to say a few things that he meant to say perhaps along the way and he saved it for the end and he didn't want to let this opportunity pass without mentioning it. And so it, doesn't all, it, it, it betrays an outline in a sense. But in verses 6 down through verse 10 and then in verses 17 to verse 19, Paul talks about money and, and being rich. Or maybe not being rich, but desiring to be rich. And as he does, this theme of the need for contentment in the life of the child of God as a theme that becomes very prominent. Why don't you look at me at verses 6 to 10. We'll read those and uh, we'll read verse 17 down through verse number 19. Speaking of godliness, Paul says in verse 6, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can't take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich, and notice it says those who desire. If you're here this morning, you say, well, I'm not rich. Well, so this doesn't apply to me. I don't have to watch out for this. It's not just the rich. It's those who desire to be rich. They fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, you've all heard this verse, the love of money is a root 
of all kinds of evils. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now look at verse 17. This theme of contentment and money comes up again. Verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, and they're to be rich in this way. All right? It's not bad to be rich, but if you're rich, be rich in this way, in good works, to be generous, and to be ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Take hold, right? Remember, the theme here is finishing well. You can reach for eternal life and, and, and faithfulness and making it to the end all your life. But when you get to the end, if you're not able to take hold of it, then you've not finished well. And God's Word wants us to be able to take hold of that which is truly life. And so I want to encourage you this morning, cultivate contentment in your life. Cultivate means we work at it, right? It means we do things that might help foster contentment in our life, right? It means we say yes to some things because they may help us be content. And we say no to other things because, well, they may battle against contentment in our life. Contentment is not something that we're born with. It's something that we've got to work on. And we will go through seasons in our life where maybe we feel very content. Don't take that for granted because it may not last long. There may be other seasons in our life when we, when we feel very deeply the loss of a sense of contentment. And so what can we do to cultivate contentment in our life? I think those verses that we just read, verse 6 to 10 and verses 17 to 19, I think they tell us a couple of things we can do to help cultivate contentment in our life. Number one. We've got to keep a heavenly perspective as we go through this world. You know, they say hindsight is 2020, right? You go through something and you're not really sure what you're doing. And, you, you know, you wish if you had it to do over again, you'd change some things. And then once you get through it, you look back and you go, well, now it all makes sense. Right? I remember one time hearing, hearing a person who was very on up in age. And they said, you know, when I finally figured out how the world works, I was too old to do anything about it. Imagine when we get to heaven someday and we look back on our life and, and we see the good times, we see the bad times, but with that heavenly perspective, it all looks so different. The things we thought were important, things we, we stressed over so much, you know, in, in, in the light of eternity, they're not that important. Or, or things that we meant to get to, but that we never did get to, they'll seem so important then. We must keep a heavenly perspective. From an earthly perspective, money equals gain. But from a heavenly perspective, godliness and contentment equals gain. Those are very different ideas of what gain is. God help us have a heavenly perspective. The apostle Paul dealt with this himself. He wasn't an expert yet. Listen to what he said to the church at Philippi, Philippians 4, verse 11. He said, not that I'm speaking of being in need, but I have learned, okay, cultivate contentment. Paul speaks about that in his own life. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He wasn't born with it. He had to learn it along the way. I, I, I think that word learn is very intentional. It's as if Paul's saying, I used to didn't get this, 
Okay, but I've been through some things and along the way I've learned. And usually we learn the hard way. Paul says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. Whatever the circumstance, I have learned, there's that word again, learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Here's the secret. Here's the perspective. I can do all things through Jesus who gives me strength. There's your heavenly perspective. One author reflecting on this passage says, people are truly rich when they're content with what they have. The richest person in the world is the one who doesn't need anything else. Brothers and sisters, work to cultivate contentment in your life, and it will help you finish well. Another thing we can do to cultivate contentment in our life is to check our desires, right? To keep our desires in check. In these two verses, verse 9 and verse number 10, uh, the language of desire will be used four different times. He says in the first half of verse 9, the desire to be rich. In the second half of verse 9, senseless and harmful desires. In the first half of verse 10, he speaks of the love of money. That word love, we could read it as desire. And in verse 10, the second half, he uses the word craving. And so uh, money is something that, that all of us from time time to time in our life, money, financial security, resources, possessions, real estate, whatever it is that brings you comfort that is a material possession of some sort. These will be things your heart will be tempted to go after, to find comfort in those things instead of in better things. You know, some of the richest, most well-to-do people of any generation will tell you that money never truly brought them contentment. We always think if I just had a little bit more money in the bank, I wouldn't have to work so hard. If I just knew all my bills could be paid, I wouldn't have to stress over, over all these issues in my life. Listen to what Rockefeller said, that, that, that multimillionaire of another generation. He says, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Listen to this quote from John Jacob Astor. He was the richest person who was on the Titanic when it sank, and he went down with the ship. He described himself as the most miserable man on earth, and yet one of the earth's most richest persons. You know what Henry Ford said? He said, I was happier when I was a mechanic. Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Check your desires. Keep them in check. Invite God's Holy Spirit into the desire factory of your life, your heart, and say, Holy Spirit, help me to keep these desires in check. What else can we do to cultivate contentment? One last thing, and we'll go on to our final point this morning. Not only do we need to check our desires, we need to watch our attitude. The Bible never says there's anything wrong with having money. Some of the greatest saints in God's Word had lots of money and possessions. But the Bible does warn against attitudes that often go along with great possessions. Look at verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Haughty. It's kind of a word. We all know what it means, but we don't know how to explain it. I'll tell you what it means. It means to be arrogant. It means to think too highly of yourself and not highly enough of other people. No one should ever get the impression from one of us 
the people of God, that we think we're better than them. And if they do, that is anti-Christian. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. That has to do with our attitude, our attitude towards ourselves, our attitude towards others, our attitude towards, towards money, right? Don't put all our hope in riches. We are tempted to do that. Trust me, I know that temptation very well. If my checking account has a little more money in it, I feel like I can kick my feet up and take a break sometimes. And if it has less, well, I just worry about whether things are going to be okay. And yet God's been on his throne the whole time. We must check our attitudes, our attitude toward God, our attitude towards generosity. Brother or sister, if you're here today and you say, if I had a lot of money, I'd be so generous. I want to say, God bless you. Are you generous now? Because if you're not, what makes you think you'd be generous then? Generosity is all a matter of perspective. Just ask the widow who gave her might. And Jesus said she'd given more than all those rich who had given great, vast amounts. Let me share with you one final piece of biblical advice for how to finish well. We need to be growing in godliness and cultivating contentment in our life. Finally, we must fight for faithfulness. And fight is the word because it's not easy. In fact, fight is Paul's word. Look at verse 11 and 12. Closing this letter to his young protege, Paul writes, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. And he'll walk through the rest of this chapter all the way down with one clear theme. Stay faithful. Don't give up. Don't quit. Keep on running the race. Paul had so much to say about faithfulness. He knew about it. He lived it. In fact, in his next letter to Timothy, when Paul knew that he was about to die, the thing he was most proud of It wasn't all the churches he had planted. It wasn't all the persecution he had endured. It wasn't the countless numbers of people he had shared the gospel with. He he was the groundbreaking missionary of the early church. That was not what he was most proud of. Listen to what he said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 5. He tells Timothy, as for you, fulfill your ministry. That means stay faithful. Reflecting on his own life, Paul would go on to say, the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Brothers and sisters, I hope as you hear those words in your heart, you're saying, Jesus, help me fight the good faith. Help me finish the race. I don't want to give up before the end arrives. I want to stay the course. We have to fight for faithfulness in our lives. Paul often would use an analogy of a race. Right? We're in a race. But it was never a sprint. It was always a long distance race of endurance. And if we're going to finish the race, we got to run. We got to run. We flee from certain things. We pursue after certain other things. It's a description of, of running 
We run away from that which would hold us captive, sin and temptation, settling for less than what God has for us. We run after things like godliness. We must finish the race. And I want to tell you, there's more than one way to give up. You, 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 you can, so, some give up by, they, they quit altogether. Some give up by, they just quit trying. Some give up by just quitting going to church or quitting reading their Bibles. And you say, well, I haven't given up all the way, but you've given up some really important things. Don't give up. There's this phenomenon going on in a generation just slightly younger than myself. I, I read two articles about it this past week in, in major media outlets online. It, and it says that they, they've been promised that if they work hard, they make good grades, that these young people go to college, they get advanced degrees, and then they get out into the workforce, and they get there, they, they work really, really hard, and they find that they're still empty on the inside. So they've been told all their life, if you just work really hard and get a good job, you can be happy. And they're not finding that happiness. And you know what they're doing? They're doing something that, that uh, the people who are observing these phenomena, phenomena call soft quitting. They're not quitting all the way. They're just quitting trying. Right? They're not getting a whole lot out of their career, so they've decided, you know what, I'm not going to put that much into it. They found out that their job is just not all that important to them. I think sometimes we see that in the church. And we just sort of quit trying. Don't give up, brothers and sisters. Don't give up. May God's Holy Spirit touch your heart and give you a passion today never to give up. You may almost give up, but don't give up. Maybe today's the day you recommit yourself and you say, I'm going to finish this race. God's not done with me yet. Make the end your goal. You want to finish well. Work for godliness. Have the right kind of ambition. Spend time with Jesus and finish this race. This passage, which is about finishing well, I want you to notice in closing how the passage begins and how the passage ends. It's sort of enveloped or sandwiched. Notice in verse 3, we read about the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's how this passage began with the gospel. Notice how it ends in verse 20. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. That's the gospel. A passage all about finishing well and working hard begins and ends with a message about what Jesus did for you. Brother and sister, we're supposed to work hard. We're supposed to train ourselves. We're supposed to cultivate disciplines in our life. But the Christian life begins and ends with the gospel. Not with your effort, but the gospel. And what is that? Here's the gospel. Jesus finished the work you most needed. The work of salvation. Jesus did that for you. If you are to make it to the end, it won't be by your effort or your striving, though we're called to do both. It will because, be because Jesus 
loved you and thought of you as he was nailed to a cross. The precious gospel message begins and ends with that. Our lives of faith should begin and end with that as well. Let me invite you to bow your heads as we reflect on this word today and what God might have us to do in response. Let me ask you one question. Every head bowed, every eye closed as we get real reflective for just a moment. If you died today, would you have finished well? Would you go out on a high note, having been faithful, glory to God? If not, what needs to change in your life so that you can finish well? What commitments do you need to make and keep? What repentance do you need to offer? Let me tell you, Jesus loves you and died for you knowing every failure that you'd ever commit. When you were at your lowest, about to give up, Jesus had you on his mind, and he said, I love them anyways. I will die for them in their place. That's the gospel message. God wants us to finish well. I think some things need to change today if that's going to happen for us. May that be the prayer of our heart during our invitation today. God, help me to finish well. If you're here this morning and you feel Jesus calling you to respond, I want to, in just a moment, invite you to come kneel at this altar, invite you to come and speak with me. If you're here and you've never given your heart to Jesus, today is the day that you begin the race and Jesus will help you finish well. If you repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus, he will save you and never let you go. Father in heaven, we ask for your help. As we have a time of invitation this morning, we pray, God, that you'd work on our hearts. Lord, make us obedient to whatever we need that we might finish well. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand with me? Our time of invitation begins.